Well, as hoped and promised, we're coming back to our study of, of joy. And, and what really set us in this direction was the closing section of First Thessalonians with three very familiar verses, chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. It says there, and many of you might have a passage like this uh, in your house somewhere. Rejoice always, we do actually. <laughs> Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Father, we do pray as we study this topic of joy, you would teach us to rejoice. Show us how. And use us, not use us in our joy to serve others, but use us as well to help our brothers and our sisters rejoice as well, and to help those who don't know you know the joy of Christ. We ask for his glory. Amen. 35 years ago, in 1988, a song was released, and in the music video, which right around the time when all that was starting, or no, maybe a little after, in the music video, there was a businessman who was reading a newspaper, and the headline shown was that the stock market had crashed. And the man is seen in the following scene, standing on the edge of a balcony, presumably about to jump to his death. Kind of an ominous image to describe. The song lyrics described other troubling scenarios, which, if they all happened to the same person, would be tragic. In the song, you hear of a man losing his bed, a man loses his home, he can't pay his rent, his landlord is taking him to court, he has no money, he has no nice clothes, and he has no woman in his life. And despite the ominous circumstances depicted in the video and in the lyrics, the song had a very cheerful tone and grew very quickly in popularity. In fact, it was the first a cappella song to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The song was by Bobby McFerrin, and it was called, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Don't worry, we were told, be happy. And, and there was something about the title, something about the tone of the song that resonated with people and that makes sense. We have a culture that generally wants to be happy. We like the idea of cheerfulness. We like joy. And we'd like to think that even when life is hard, even when tough things happen, we can find peace and happiness. And that's the, that song is not alone on the list of happy songs. 1977, Bob Marley and the Wailers told us through their song, Three Little Birds, don't worry about a thing because every little thing gonna be all right. 10 years ago, Pharrell Williams said, clap along if you were happy and, and nothing should bring you down. What strikes me most about these happy songs, frankly, is how empty they are. We, 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 sometimes culture teaches them to children so they can be happy, but behind the happy tone is nothing of substance. Why should we be happy? How do you or I know that every little thing is going to be all right? What assurance do we have? It's not mentioned in the song. If you boil it down, the message of those songs, the message of the culture is circular. You shouldn't be sad because that will make you more sad. 
And that's going to make other people sad. No, you need to be happy because if you're happy, you'll only be happier and you'll make other people happy. And that's the extent of the song. It treats happiness like a new pair of shoes you can just put on whenever you want. We should expect empty emotionalism from the culture, but it's troubling when that kind of message comes from within the church. It's possible for us as Christians to convey the same message when we walk around telling ourselves to rejoice and telling others to rejoice without giving them reasons to rejoice. If you don't give concrete reasons for joy, again, we're treating our emotions like a thermostat you can just raise and lower at will. The result of that kind of thinking is either going to be people walking around, patting themselves on the back, elevating themselves because I know how to be joyful and you don't, self-arrogance, or guilt and hopelessness because I'm trying to be happy and I can't. That's not the picture the Bible gives us of joy. True joy, biblical joy, Christian joy, does not originate in the human heart. It is to be in our hearts, but that's not its source. Last time we talked about joy, I pointed out to you, the only true source of joy is God himself. God the Father has given us his joy. It comes through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and then it's applied to his people by the Holy Spirit. There is gonna be worldly joy, there's gonna be false joy, but the real thing only comes from God. In the last message, I also pointed out that true joy is intended by God to connect to and enhance every area of the Christian life. It's connected to hope and peace and Christian ministry. I also said that it is compatible with pain, and I went through a list of verses describing how Christians could, in difficulty, in tribulation, in affliction, still abound in joy. So even when life hurts in all the ways that it can, physically, financially, relationally, even in all those painful moments, the command of 1 Thessalonians 5.16 remains. That is, rejoice, always. I told you last time there are about 10 or 11 commands in the New Testament to rejoice. I'll let you find those on your own if you want to do that for, for homework. But my goal today is to help us accomplish that. How do I rejoice? How am I supposed to be obedient to this command? If joy is not just a switch, what do I do? In the providence of God, I I found myself fighting for joy more this week. And I don't know if it was more than usual. Or maybe I was just paying attention to it more because of, 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 of the sermon. Being joyful does not mean having no problems. Joy is delight. It's a pleasing experience. But how do we pursue it? I found it helpful to put into practice what I was learning in my own studies, so I hope it's helpful to you too. If we can't just flip on the switch for joy, we need to go and take our mind to a reason to be joyful. What are those reasons? And studying the New Testament, I organized the, the examples of joy into seven reasons. I think two weeks ago I told you eight, but I combined a couple of them. 
Seven reasons to rejoice. You'll notice that as we go through them, the seven reasons are not distinct. It's not like you can do A or B or C. There's a lot of overlap between them. And I think that's a good thing because it means there's never going to be just one reason to rejoice. We serve Christ. We are servants of the living God. And even in the difficulties and the pains or the mundane boredom of this world, the one constant unchanging reality is God. And so all the reasons we'll see today are going to be connected to and flow from God himself. Similar to last time, it's, it's more of a, a Bible study than a, than a sermon proper. So don't feel obligated to feel like you have to jot everything down. I'm probably gonna skip over some references. If you find yourself thinking, where was that? I may not have even said the verse, that's okay. But just, I think it's an encouragement to us to see and hear how people rejoiced in the Bible and for what reasons, and then to pursue those reasons in our own life. So here we go, seven reasons to rejoice. Number one, we have examples of people rejoicing in God's revelation. If you just want to write one word, it's revelation. Many, many, many years ago, before the internet, people made phone calls, and before phone calls, they wrote letters Alex is out of town this week. He, he, he was, they, they were engaged, and I think only he, Alex and Didi only saw each other a handful of times, but they wrote letters. Some of you who remember that before my generation understood what it was to, to receive a letter in the mail from someone that you cared about. Today it's a text message, but it really isn't as special. It's not the same. We understand that our God has sent us a message. He, he wants us to hear him, and he has made himself available to us. He communicates to us in his revelation. And there are multiple examples in the New Testament of people rejoicing in connection to hearing the word of God. A couple Christmas examples. The angel appears outside in the field to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, Luke 2.12, and he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That great joy was connected to the good news. The Magi, they, they travel from afar. They're trying to look for Jesus. They come to Jerusalem. The star that they were looking at, had, we assume, disappeared, but it led them to Jerusalem. And then Matthew 2 says, when they came, when they saw the star this time again, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. God showed up. God was leading them. God had revealed truth to them. But we have something greater than what the shepherds saw. We have something greater than what the magi saw. We have the fullness of God's revelation. And it's something we don't appreciate enough. Men and women gave their lives so that we could have a book in our hands or now on your phones. It's so accessible to us and yet many times we don't go to it. And if we go to it, maybe we go to it as a morning checklist but not for what it is. God eternal is speaking to me in his word. God has revealed himself to me and in that we should rejoice. John chapter eight, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
How did Abraham see Christ's day? He saw it by faith. He had heard the revelation of God. He knew the seed of the woman would come one day. He knew he would have a son, Isaac. That was gonna be the line that God was gonna bring redemption to the world and blessing all through God's revelation. John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, these things I speak in the world. He's speaking of his teaching, his truth. I speak these things in the world that they, my disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I give them truth so that they would have joy. They rejoice in the revelation of God, in the truth of God. And we saw it in the church of the Thessalonians, chapter one, verse six. Paul says, you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Joy is one of those things that we understand, but it's pretty difficult to, to measure. There's no, there's no immediately tangible thing to say, well, who, you know, it's not like your height. Who has more joy? Who has less joy? But if we could figure out someone's joy level, I'd be curious to know if there's a relationship between someone's level of joy or dissatisfaction and how much they delight in reading the word of God. Ask yourself that. The next time you think, I wish I had joy, I need more joy, what should I do? Read your Bible. And don't read it as a checklist again. Delight in it. God wants me to hear him receive the word for what it is. We can rejoice always in God's revelation. Secondly, we can rejoice in God's plan. This is the idea of more than just hearing God about something that is true or that will happen. This is seeing it happen. We can see and we are seeing God work. We are seeing the power of God on display. And we know that God is in control of human history. And so many examples in the New Testament of joy are people rejoicing over what God is doing, whether it's miraculous or whether it's a fulfillment of his plan. So when John the Baptist was born, there was rejoicing. When Jesus was born, when Mary prayed, she rejoiced because God is fulfilling the plan that he's already laid out. Even in times that should have been sorrowful and were sorrowful in some way, there was joy. Jesus told his disciples when Lazarus died, he says, I rejoice, I'm glad that Lazarus has died. I'm glad that he had died, why? Because he said, for your sake, so that you would believe. He's rejoicing that God's power is gonna be manifest in this situation. That was part of the joy of the resurrection. God has fulfilled his promise. The women rejoice, the apostles rejoice. Here is Jesus, he is risen. God's word has been fulfilled. Then we have examples of prayers being answered and the people rejoice. Examples of healings and miracles and the people rejoice. This is Acts chapter eight. Philip goes to Samaria. He's preaching there. Miracles are taking place which affirm him as a, as, as a, as a messenger of God. And Acts eight, eight says, so there was much joy in that city. They saw God work. So if you're looking for joy, you wanna increase joy, ask yourself, well, how have I seen God's power on display in my life? How have I seen God answer my prayers? If you don't see God answering your prayers, you might be praying incorrectly, but you also really, if we're honest, maybe just aren't praying all that much. God's not really answering my prayers. Well, what are you praying for? Well, I don't pray that much. Well, of course he's not gonna answer your prayers if you're not praying. There might be a connection between people who have less joy and people who don't read the Bible, but also people who lack joy and you don't pray. 
We go through difficult seasons and we think this is not good, but we forget God is working. God is sovereignly orchestrating. His plan is still being accomplished. We're kind of in a gap. Christ has come. We're waiting for him to come again. You turn on the news and you see all the wicked things happening in our own culture and in the world as a whole, and you think, where is this headed? We know where it's headed. Everything is moving toward the final plan of God, the final phase of God in which the world will reject him and Christ will come and conquer Everything is moving along right in God's predetermined plan. He's in charge. And so we rejoice in God's plan, in God's power. Number three, this is an example of, it's connected to his revelation, but it's an example of his power and his plan. We rejoice in God's salvation. This should be an obvious one, and and it applies two ways. It applies to yourself because you're saved, and it applies to others. We have been recipients of God's mercy. In John 4, 36, Jesus says, he who sows and he who reaps, he who plants the seed, he who uh, uh, receives the harvest, they will rejoice together. He said that to his disciples after speaking with the woman at the well. There's a joy in knowing that God has worked to bring someone to salvation. In Luke chapter 10 the disciples, this is a common joy passage, they come back to him and they said, oh, we rejoice. Jesus, we went out in your name and even the demons were subject to us. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the joy of salvation. That's something that can't be taken away. The passage continues, it says, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He rejoiced in God's plan being manifest in people coming to salvation. The heart of God, the joy of God in salvation is seen maybe most clearly in Luke chapter 15. I mentioned those parables last time, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, then you have the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. The father rejoices because his son returns and Jesus says that's the joy of God over a sinner who repents. There are numerous examples and acts of the people rejoicing because salvation has come to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans, to to a household So we need to pause in terms of application. Okay, think and ask ourselves, how has the grace of God been manifest to me? I'm saved. While we were yet sinners, Romans says, Christ died for us. It wasn't like God hated you and then Jesus died and goes, okay, now I have to love you. God loved you in eternity past and his love sent his son to die for you. In his love, we've been justified, we've been forgiven, we've been declared righteous, and so when you're dealing with the the guilt of sin, and you feel like that's robbing your joy, you go, I'm saved, I'm accepted, because Christ has died for me. And then you can rejoice as well in the salvation of others. Whom has God brought to himself? Whom is God bringing to himself? That would connect to another thing, connect to our joy, that'd be evangelism. Our joy is connected to our, our Bible reading. Our joy is connected to our, um, our prayer life. It's connected to our evangelism. Well, I can't name anyone who's come to faith in the last three months. Are you evangelizing? 
Are you talking to people about the gospel? Are you talking to other Christians? This is part of why the church exists. We should evangelize, yes, for the salvation of others, but also for our own joy. We rejoice in salvation. Number four, we rejoice in God's sanctification. So we have God's revelation, God's plan or power, God's salvation, and now sanctification. When someone comes to Christ, we rejoice, but that's not the end of what God is doing. Salvation is justification. They're declared righteous, they're forgiven. Sanctification is now the process. They're growing. They're being strengthened in the faith. They're maturing. And that's a cause for joy. Paul is, uh, has numerous examples of that. He said to the Romans, your obedience is known to all. He's not saying, oh, you're, you're, you're Christians now, so that's good. He says, your obedience is known to all, and for that, I rejoice over you. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, I rejoice over the, he rejoiced over the repentance of the Corinthians. He says, you guys were made sorrowful and you repented and in that I rejoice. Colossians 2.5, Paul says, I rejoice to see your good order and to see the firmness of your faith in Christ. And more famously, you can turn there if you like, James chapter one, verses two and three. Count it all joy, my brothers, James, if, if you don't know this verse, maybe go ahead and turn there and mark it in your Bible. James 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. What? Life is hard. Count it all joy. What? Why? Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In high school, we started lifting weights because I played football for a little bit. You play soccer, and now you have a weight room, and they throw you in there, and you start to lift, and then you lift into college. And I remember there were times where you would lift, and then the next day, you feel sore. Sometimes you lift, and the next day, you feel nothing. And the next day, you feel nothing, and I think, oh, what a waste. It's supposed to hurt because you're developing your body. That's the joy he's talking about. We don't j j delight in the pain. We delight because we know this is doing something. The testing of our faith produces steadfastness, produces perseverance. This past week, I, we were exercising at the house and somehow I ended up watching a video of the world record for a plank. You can hold up yourself up, do a plank. The guy was like 62 years old. The record's nine and a half hours, something like that, right? Eight and a half hours? Ten and a half? 9.38. I was rounding. Nine and a half hours. Nine and a half hours. Holding a plank. Fighting through pain for a Guinness World Record. Surely we can delight in the pain of life knowing that God's working. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. He's sanctifying us. We can delight as well in the sanctification of others, just like Paul did. And, and third John says, uh, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's delighting in God's sanctification. I see other people and they're growing in their faith. There may be something I don't like now, but I look back at how they were years ago and I rejoice because God is growing them. So stop and ask yourself, how is God working in me? How, how have I grown? How is God working in others? How have they grown? Do, and then you gotta ask, do you even know enough other Christians 
to see their growth. If we think salvation is the end of God's work in our life, we're shortchanging not just his plan, but we're shortchanging our joy. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. Number five, we can rejoice in God's family. God's family. This is obviously connected to salvation where we join the family. Sanctification is connection to others. But this is just in the relational side. We have fellowship with others. God made us as relational beings. God is a relational being. That's what it is to be a triune being. He is three in one. He is love. He's a relational God. And he created us to be in relationship to others and so Romans 12, 15 tells us, rejoice with those who rejoice. Why are we happy? What's the reason? Well, the reason is my friend, my brother is happy, and that's enough. I rejoice with them. Paul multiple times says he found joy, he found refreshment in the churches and in his coworkers. He delighted, he rejoiced in Timothy and in Titus. The Philippians, it says, rejoiced at the, at the return of Epaphroditus, a couple of times Paul says to the church, you are my joy, my crown. This is Christian fellowship. Second John, verse 12, the apostle says, I have much to write to you, but I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be made complete. He connected complete, full joy with personal interaction. How important is that in our own society now where you can have thousands of friends, hundreds, tens of thousands of friends, and never have seen any of them face to face? That's not God's design for the church. We need to delight in our relationships with other Christians. And this is so hard. Our, our, our culture pulls us apart digitally, but it also crams our schedules. And when do you find time to connect? I might tell someone else, hey, we should have dinner together. Let's do it. Okay, you let me know. Yeah, I'll let you know. And then a month goes by. And then it's three months. And then it's six months. And then it's a year. And then it's like three years. Like, hey, we, we still going to have dinner, right? All, 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 everything's good. It's been five years. We need to work toward being intentional about developing deeper friendships with the people at church. And that on our end means opening our lives to the struggles and to the joys and delighting in that. This is as a practical extension of that is, is, is obviously those of you I'm preaching, you're here, you're here on Sunday morning, that's a good thing. Come to when the church gathers next Sunday night, the Lord's Supper. It's not just a tack-on service, it's the church gathering, those in the Spanish gathering. Afterward, we're done, we go outside, we have a meal, the kids are playing. That, that is God's design that the church interact. They're a family. This is English service, so we're second. Come early, go to the Sunday class. Join an FLG, they'll be starting up in, in uh, late August. It's a chance to be in the home of other people, develop that friendship. That's rejoicing in God's family. That's his design. I'm sure there's a huge correlation between people who say they're depressed or sad and the same people saying they feel lonely. That's the work of Satan, not God. Number six, we can rejoice 
and God's reward. God's reward. So salvation is the first step. That's justification. The process is sanctification. The goal of it is glorification. There is an end here. I have to have a picture to the end. Okay, so in the pain, I understand the pain is doing something, but that pain and the work that it's doing is going in a direction. The end of it is glorification. The end of it is a reward that awaits me. And Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said it in Matthew 5. He said it in Luke 6. Blessed are you. Blessed or happy. People have said that's another translation. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you. You're going to go to work and your coworkers are going to tease you or make fun of you or not invite you to what they do or, or you're going to get a demotion because your boss hates you. What? Blessed are you? Why? Verse 12. Rejoice, Jesus says, and be glad for your reward is great in heaven because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is not you being persecuted because you're annoying or because you're belligerent or because you don't have self-control. This is you being oppressed or persecuted because of your faith. Jesus says you're blessed because the persecution proves you're on the side, you're on the right side of history, you're on the people who proclaim the truth and you have a great reward awaiting you. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34 says, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully? joyfully accepted losing your belongings. This is during the persecution against uh, the Roman Empire, against the Christians, particularly the, the Jewish Christians. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You don't like your car, you don't like your house, or you lost your car, or you're losing your house. No, in Christ you have a better possession you have an abiding one. First Peter says we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved, it's kept, it's guarded in heaven for us. And in this, First Peter 4, uh, 1, 6 says, in this we rejoice. Paul said the same thing to the Romans. He didn't, he didn't speak of joy specifically, but he was giving him that, that picture, the temporary affliction right now. He said it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. How often do you think about heaven? And do you think that has any connection to your joy? I remember hearing John MacArthur once say that his book on heaven was his least uh, selling book in the United States, and, and he said that that's, he, he believed that was due to the American culture. He said he goes to Russia, they want to hear about heaven. You go to persecuted nations, they want to know about heaven. This life is over. But in America, life is, life is pretty good. The fridge is full, the pantry is stocked, we're not worried about anything, we have cars that run. Life is easy, and so you got a lot of time to worry, and a lot of time to find a lack of joy, because we're not focused on heaven, the, the, the pains of this life actually increase our desire for heaven. You want to increase your joy? Study about heaven. Read the Bible. Understand that in the, the, the difficulties or the boringness of this life, we have an eternal inheritance awaiting us. We have the victory in Christ. 
That leads us to the final reason to rejoice, and this is the summation of all of them, the unity of all of them. We are to rejoice in God's Son. Ultimately, we're not rejoicing in things, we're rejoicing in a person, the Son of God. Every aspect of joy, every expression of joy in the New Testament is ultimately coming from Christ. Christ is the word of God. He came to to, to showcase the heart of God, to give us God's truth. He is God's supreme revelation. Christ is the centerpiece, the beginning, and the end of God's plan. And he's the one who, as the king, is advancing everything according to his power. Christ is the one who has saved us by his sacrifice. He has given us salvation in his death, in his resurrection. Christ is sanctifying us by our spirit. As we're sanctified, we're becoming more like Christ. And Christ is the one who has united us to himself and made us part of a spiritual family. The unity that we have with others is because we're united in Christ. And he's the one who'll give us our final reward. This is the true joy of the New Testament. It's the joy of Christ. It's the joy in Christ. John the Baptist said he rejoiced. He said his joy was made full at the manifestation of Christ. I must decrease, he said. He must increase. Matthew 13, Jesus shares the parable of a man who joyfully sells everything he owns. Why? To buy a field. Why? Because in that field, there's a treasure. He said, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's the picture of a person getting rid of their old life. I count that as nothing. That's what Paul said. So that I would know Christ. The disciples rejoiced when Christ was raised from the dead. It wasn't joy simply over a miracle. Oh, some guy came back from the dead. That's exciting. But this is Christ who has come back from the dead. This is their king. This is their leader. The disciples rejoiced when they were persecuted. It says they rejoiced because they were worthy They were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They loved him. We understand that from from a human standpoint. There are things we delight in, even though they're painful, if it's going to serve someone we love. Paul had people around him preaching the gospel, and some of them had turned evangelism into a, a competition. I do it better than you. I have more converts than you. So Philippians 1.18, Paul says, well, so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. People are hearing about Christ. Evangelism for Paul was not about statistics. It wasn't about numbers. It was about Christ. People know Christ. More people are hearing about Christ Paul says to the Colossians, I rejoice in my suffering because I'm fulfilling the mission of Christ. And then 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Peter says to the people, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory Obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. That's the joy of Christ. The final example of joy in the New Testament is Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, at least specifically using the word joy or rejoice. Revelation 19, 7 says, let us rejoice 
Let us exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The joy is not just that sin is abolished and there's no more pain. The joy is that Christ has come and God now dwells with his people. This is the true measure of spiritual growth. It's love for Christ. Jesus told his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That, that promise is only reassuring. That promise only brings joy if you love Christ. If your mom or dad, you're a teenager, if your mom or dad told you, I'll never leave you or forsake you, you're like, mom, go get away. I don't want to. If someone you don't like says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, you're like, well, that's, a, that's annoying. That's not a promise. That's not a good thing. If you don't know Christ, you won't have true joy. But if you remember that Christ is with you, if you remember that Christ is guiding you, if you remember that Christ has saved you, if you remember that Christ has, has, has joined you to his family, you have joy knowing that he's always with you. If you aren't growing in your knowledge and in your love of Christ, you're not going to be growing in joy. We're dealing with something that, a person, we're dealing with someone who is infinite, eternal, and glorious. Every toy a kid buys is enjoyed for a moment, some for half a day, some for maybe some years, but eventually that joy goes away. It's a finite thing. This is an infinite person, and we will delight in him forever. And we can start now. That's what Jesus said in John 17. Eternal life is to know God and to know Christ How can any Christian say, I don't know how to rejoice? We have the revelation of God. We, have, we know God's plan. We're seeing it work out. We have the salvation of God. We have the sanctification of God. We've been placed in God's family. We've been promised an eternal reward. And we have forever with us the Son of God who hears us and who leads us. Let's pray. Father God, you want a joyful people. Even in difficulty, we want to follow the example of Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. We confess to you that many times we're not joyful and we don't take any deliberate steps to produce joy in our hearts. We're, we're expecting to be zapped with it rather than doing the work. Give us the impetus to turn to your word. Give us the inclination, incline our hearts to remember your grace and your mercy in our life. Give us the openness to step into one another's lives, brothers and sisters. Help us delight in one another. Help us turn from the passing pleasure of sin and from the fading delights of this world and rejoice always in you. Father, we're grateful that you are eternal and unchanging. And we pray you would use us as well to lead others to rejoice in Jesus Christ. With the joy we show and the, and the truth we share, lead them and open their hearts to receive Christ and his eternal joy. We ask for his glory. Amen.